Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Sasha Long. Sasha is a former special education teacher, a board-certified behavior analyst, and the founder and president of The Autism Helper, a company that shares resources and strategies online for parents and teachers of children with autism. As a professional with experience on both sides of collaborative efforts, Sasha brings us some ideas on how to improve communication between teachers and specialists. We also discuss her leadership style as a business owner, some of the common challenges faced by teachers, and the importance of empowering paraprofessionals in the classroom. In this episode, discover what's possible when the learning environment is set up for growth and success. For more information about Sasha and her work, please visit our website, autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you, Sasha Long. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Rachel. I'm excited to be here. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I am Sasha Long. I'm a former special education teacher and board-certified behavior analyst, and I am the founder and president of The Autism Helper. And at The Autism Helper, we share resources and strategies for parents and teachers who work with kids on the spectrum, and we do that through our blog, our social media. I have my own podcast. We have an online course and a professional development membership. And before COVID, I used to spend quite a bit of time traveling doing live events too. But obviously, I'm not doing that right now. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. It sounds like you have a lot to juggle on your plate. Yeah. We try to we try to give give information in a lot of different ways because I know, you know, some people prefer to read blog posts, some people want to take a course, some people want to watch videos, so we try to get give all the options. Yeah, that's great just making everything accessible. Cool. So let's start with your background. How did you begin working with the autistic population? So, I went into undergrad like most, you know, 18-year-olds do with like no idea what I wanted to do with my life, and I thought I wanted to be a social worker, and my mom told me I had to get my masters to be a social worker, and I didn't want to do more school after undergrad, which is ironic because I got my masters anyways. But I ended up declaring the special ed major because I was kind of on the fence between education and special ed and just kind of jumped in. I was like, I'm going to declare it and then I'll change it later if I need to. And as part of our undergrad programs, you needed internship hours and supervision hours every year. So I started working in special recreation, which I really loved doing as like a one-on-one camp aide, and then started student teaching and all that. And so when I graduated as a special ed teacher, my first job was in a self-contained classroom where most of the students were diagnosed with autism. So that was my first teaching position. Can you just clarify or explain what a self-contained classroom means? Yeah, sure. And there's, you know, the lingo differs everywhere. And I, like, this is my job and career and people will throw like phrases like that at me. And I'm like, what's that one mean? (laughs) So every district and, you know, part of the country and type of school has different phrases for how they name their classrooms. And I've, you know, kind of found that trends in education, sometimes every 10 years, things will like shift too. 
So self-contained really is not a great phrase, really, but it just refers to a classroom where the kids are spending most of their day in that classroom and everyone in that classroom has an IEP. So there aren't any kids in that class without an IEP and kids are spending most of their day. So I would say more, you know, up to, you know, probably around 80% to 100% of their day within that classroom. Some places in the country call it a life skills room often. That's another kind of common phrase for that. Okay. And before you continue on with your story, could you just briefly define what IEP is? Sure. So an IEP is an individualized education plan. And once a student receives a diagnosis of a disability, they would get an IEP through a school district. So either, you know, a parent would request that when their child starts school as they get a diagnosis or a school might request an evaluation. And that plan really just outlines how that child's education needs will be met within the school system. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Okay, so you were working in a self-contained classroom. Mm-hmm. And I was really, you know, thrown right in. I, I talk about that first year teaching quite a bit on my platforms because I, I kind of wish I was on a reality show that year and had it all filmed because I think it would be hilarious. And I, you know, I'm, I'm five feet tall. I'm, I'm really short. I had all boys that were all like, I think six feet tall. They were just huge. They were like, you know, preteen boys can be like men. They were like men. And so it was like me and these like nine, nine men like strolling around the school. I probably looked like hilarious. And they're like, who's this girl? Like thinks he's going to teach these kids. But it was a big adjustment because I realized how poorly I was prepared for the role. And that's really not a reflection of my undergrad program. I think it's just a reflection of how broad a special ed degree is. You're typically, when you've got a special ed degree, you can teach preschool through high school. You can teach, you know, a self-contained room, like I explained, or be in an inclusion setting where you're basically teaching the gen ed curriculum. So you could be teaching, you know, preschoolers potty training all the way through seniors and high school pre-cal. Like you just can't be well prepared for all of the challenges that that diverse of a population would have. So the first few years teaching was a lot of trial and error and figuring it out. And I was lucky to have a principal that really gave me a lot of leeway to do that, to figure it out on my own, because I didn't know what to do. And I've told this story many times, like on my own podcast and in the membership that I distinctly remember one of the paraprofessionals in my class, like, you know, an aide that helps the teacher ask me like two weeks into school, my first year, he's like, you know, I want to sit down with you and I want to, I want to hear about your philosophy on behavior management. And I was like, cool, once I figure that out, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know because <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> like, So, you know, it was a lot of figuring it out and seeing what works. And as I kind of got, you know, farther into my career and started seeing more and more challenging behaviors, I started researching more and looking where I could go to learn more to help that group of kids. And I really, you know, connected so much with those families. A lot of those kids from my first few years teaching, you know, I still know they're like, they're legit men now. They have like beards and they're, you know, <laughs> I still talk to their families. And I, when it came to challenging behaviors, I wanted to be able to help and to be able to provide different ways to communicate. And I didn't know what to do. So that's kind of when I learned more and more about applied behavior analysis and decided to go to grad school while I was teaching which was a great experience in hindsight. You know, at the time it was hard because I would teach all day and go to class at night. 
But it was great because I got to learn about these strategies under this umbrella of applied behavior analysis, the science of human behavior, and learn concepts. And then the next day, go back in my classroom and be like, oh my God, I see that happening. I see how reinforcement works. Oh my gosh, I want to try this. Mm-hmm. And I did my thesis in my classroom. I did my practicum in my classroom. I had someone come supervise me within that class. So it was really great to do it within that setting that I've been working in for so long. And so I became a BCBA, a board certified behavior analyst, while I was teaching in the classroom. So that's kind of how I got my BCBA. And then after that, I you know, really saw a need for, you know, ideas. Like as when I was a young teacher, I was, this was before Instagram, before Pinterest, before teacher blogs. And I was so hungry for advice and for any kind of guidance. And I know a lot of special ed teachers know there are these books called task galore books. And I'm sure they still exist. And I, teachers that taught like 15 years ago will definitely know these books because I had three of them and they were, they had pictures of work tasks and things like that. And they were like my only thing that I had. Mm -hmm. And teachers would come observe in my classroom and get ideas. And I started, I was like, oh, I should, I should start a blog. I don't, I don't know how to start a blog, but I'm going to start a blog. So I had a friend that knew how to help me start a blog. And about 10 years ago, I started blogging and just putting ideas on the internet and seeing what would happen. I had no idea what would come of it. And I started posting photos, doing videos in my classroom, doing video tours. And then everything really from there on snowballed in such an organic way that it's it's cool to think about. I started blogging more and more. From then, I started creating curriculum that I sell on a website called Teachers Pay Teachers. It's an online marketplace where teachers can create and sell educational resources. So I started doing that. I started seeing all the holes and like, oh my gosh, I need curriculum on this. I need, I need resources on that. And, you know, as I kept sharing ideas, new things kept coming up of like, oh, well, do you do speaking? And I was like, no, but I could. So I I really just said yes to like every opportunity that came. Like, do you want to come to our school and consult? Sure. Do you want to get on a plane and come give a presentation? Okay. So it came to the point where, you know, I had to leave the classroom because I was working basically two full-time jobs. Um, So now I just do, you know, all the autism helper stuff full-time. And since then, we've grown quite a bit. We've built out a blogger team with eight different bloggers. So we have preschool through high school teachers. We have an OT, an SLP, a parent. We kind of have all those different perspectives I started a podcast to share my ideas, to interview other experts and, you know, people in the field and in the community. And then within the last two years, we added in a professional development membership group, which has been so amazing. We have almost 800 teachers, parents, and professionals in that group. And I share monthly training videos and digital resources, and we do special little webinars and stuff with them. So that's a really nice, like, community within the community. Yeah. And then I created a behavior change course last summer. So that was kind of the the last layer to go in recently. So things have kind of just kept building up. Mm-hmm. I can just feel your passion, you know, as you're speaking, like I can tell that you're excited about all of these different avenues, <laughs> but yeah, which one I guess is the one that you are the proudest of, like, which is your outlet that you really enjoy? I think the membership has been something I really like put my whole self in. And it was a really different idea. You know, blogs exist, teaching curriculum exists, but I had this idea of 
creating a membership that was focused around training. So it's not like, a, hey, print the worksheets you need, easy peasy, buy. It's mm-hmm. no, no, no. Every month we're going to talk and we're going to learn. And there's, you know, you get every month they get four to six new training videos. And we talk about staff training and data collection and behavior change. So within that group, to me, it's like, those are the rock stars. Like those are the people that are showing up. Most of the teachers pay out of pocket. You know, we're, we're working with more and more school districts to have them pay for their teacher's membership. But those are the teachers that, you know, want to do more and they want to learn more and they want to get better. So I am really, really passionate about bringing a lot of value for them because like I see how how hard they work and, you know, how passionate they are and wanting to like serve their their classroom. So mm-hmm. that's been a really fun and different avenue to kind of explore in the last year and a half. Yeah. So is all of the training that you do based on ABA principles, like all of the tips that you're giving? Yes, it is. But I'm really passionate about bringing applied behavior analysis, you know, to the masses in a way that everyone understands. Like I'm so not a jargon person. I try to explain everything with like analogies within my own life of like, you know, when I go to Starbucks, this happens and not use overly technical language. That's kind of a little gripe I have with the ABA field is sometimes we get stuck in our technical language so much. Yeah. And I think that does us a disservice. It ostracizes our colleagues. You know, if if the OT doesn't understand what we're talking about, they're not going to want to implement our idea. So I love sharing ABA strategies in a way that everyone can understand and benefit from. Yeah, I agree. Because, you know, having been in the field as a BCBA and working in school systems, I could see how it could be off-putting to use these technical terms, even with parents sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I know there can be a little bit of a, it's almost like a turf war within the classroom when you have a consultant and you have the teacher and there's like this, I don't know, like possession or something over the students. Like, mm-hmm. well, no, I know what's best. No, I know what's best. No, it's my classroom. No, I'm the specialist, which is really toxic. You know, yeah. we talked about that on this podcast too, about just the importance of multidisciplinary collaboration. So Actually, we have a question here from one of our listeners, Kelly Cotter, and she wants to know what are some of your ideas to improve collaboration between teachers, speech therapists, and behavior analysts within the school setting? Ooh, good question. And I could talk on this for like five hours, but I'll, I'll keep it short. <laughs> I, I've actually done a presentation at a, I did it at Illinois ABA workshop two years ago, and then I've done it at a few clinics and companies in the Chicagoland area about exactly this topic, because I think I have this, you know, unique position of I've kind of, I've been on both sides of the table. Like I've been on the side of the table of the teacher with the specialist coming in. And I've been on the side of the consultant that comes in. And just like with our clients, we have to pair and we forget to pair ourselves and to make ourselves a reinforcer. I tell teachers all the time when it comes to pairing and what that means is like, you have to be the chocolate chip cookie. Like everyone loves a (laughs) chocolate chip cookie. I I would eat a chocolate chip cookie every day for breakfast if I could. And that's what you want, like you as the teacher in your classroom to embody. You want to be a chocolate chip cookie. And as a consultant and as a member of a team, we have to be a chocolate chip cookie too, like to that teacher. So if you come in and the first thing out of your mouth could be taken as criticism, like Mm. you're now like, 
the opposite of a chocolate chip cookie, like your celery, like no one wants that. So <laughs> like you want to, you know, really take the time to build rapport and to pair. And I know everyone's schedules are crazy and caseloads are crazy. So I think we feel the pressure of not having time to do that. But you have to, I think for a teacher, their classroom, it's like their home. Yeah. They probably spent their own money. Like they spend probably more time there than their house. And when someone comes in your home and gives you feedback, you're kind of like, whoa, like, no, no, no. Like this is my home. Like Mm -hmm. you don't get to tell me what to do in my house. So I think that's something to really be careful with and to spend the time, you know, seeing what the challenges really are and really acknowledging all of the efforts a teacher has made, you know, we, we kind of can keep those rules that we use for our clients too, of like how many positive statements to negative state corrective statements and give that teacher a lot of praise because they probably aren't getting a lot of praise. That's true. Yeah. I mean, in a classroom where maybe they have paraprofessionals on their side, but who really is there to tell them that they're doing a good job? Yeah. So what are some tips for pairing? Would you say maybe trying to connect with the teacher before you even start talking about the kid, setting up a separate meeting with them one-on-one? Yeah, I think those are great ideas. And it sometimes depends like who's bringing you into the equation. Oftentimes a BCBA or a consultant is hired by the school or possibly a parent. So it's the teacher didn't ask you to be there. So that's always kind of good to think about as well. If you can, having a meeting before you're in front of kids is great. That's obviously not always possible. My like little specific pieces of advice are, you know, to get, if you're just going for an observation, you don't get to meet the teacher ahead of time, you know, email ahead of time, tell them why you're coming, let them know, hey, I'm going to write things down. This is what I'm writing. I'm writing what I see. Ask them where you should sit. Sometimes that's such a silly thing. But like a teacher doesn't want you at their guided reading group table. Like, no, like go, go sit over there. Like you're not part of my class. You're observing. Yeah. So ask them where you should sit and then follow up immediately with an email. And that email should start with like, thank you so much. There were so many great things I saw. This is what I saw. I can't wait to work with you. Like the email shouldn't be like, here's 27 things that you could do differently. So little steps like that can build a lot of rapport If you're able to meet with a teacher individually or talk with a teacher right away, every time I go into meeting a new person, whether that's a consulting client, a parent, you know, a fellow colleague, I think the more connections you can make with that person, the better. Like the more times you can say like, hey, we're similar, even if it's something as silly as like, oh my gosh, you drink coffee? I drink coffee too. Like we're like the same. Like, oh my God, did you get that shirt at Target? Because I also have that shirt from Target. Like just silly, like surface level things. The more times you can connect of like, oh my gosh, I'm always running late too. Like I get it. The more rapport you're going to build with that person and the more that they're going to see you as someone that they want to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Is there anything you can add from the side of the teacher when collaborating with the BCBA? I think it can take an emotional toll on a teacher. I mean, and a BCBA as well. When you've been working so hard with a child and things are just not making any progress, it's really easy to take that on as like, it's my fault. Like, I'm not a good good enough teacher to change this behavior. 
and I'm not a good enough, you know, clinician to do this. So when someone else comes in and tells you something different, you almost like don't want to hear it because you want to like be right and just be like, oh, nope, this behavior is unfixable. This is just how it is. And when someone comes in and tells you something else, you're kind of like, even if it's helpful, you're like annoyed. You're like, why didn't I think of that? So Mm -hmm. I think it's sometimes like letting go of our pride, being okay, being wrong, being okay, asking for help. And that there's people that are going to know more things than us. Like even as behavior analysts, there's people that know different things than us. So just because someone can see something a different way and saw a solution you didn't doesn't mean you're not a good teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Did you ever work in home as a behaviorist? Or- I never have as a BCBA with direct clients. I Right now as a behavior analyst, I only do kind of consulting with parents on in-home programs. I don't do direct service, but I did work as, um, t- I mean, it wasn't an RBT position, a registered behavior tech, because that didn't exist then, but I did an in-home therapy as like a line therapist. Okay. Well, I guess some of the things that you're saying can also apply when looking at collaboration between a one-on-one in-home ABA team and the school team, like how to connect those two sides of the bridge. And sometimes they're like, isn't even a bridge. (laughs) Sometimes they like don't know about each other, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard because it's kind of the parent's job to connect them and be like, hey, teacher, talk to my in-home team, please. But once there is that connection, you know, it can be either group that takes the first step. I think a teacher should be feel really open to reaching out to a behavior analyst and that behavior analyst should feel really open about reaching out to the teacher. Like the more those two groups, like school and home can be on the same page, the better it's going to be for that kid. Everyone's on the same team. So it's like, Hey, I learned this. Cool. I'm going to do that too. So I think both sides should be open to reaching out and starting that dialogue. Yeah. And maybe I guess like the teacher would know if the student is receiving in-home ABA services because it would be on their IEP, right? Or is that information not always disclosed? Not necessarily. It's not always, yeah. Okay. So then I would even add though that the responsibility might fall on the BCBA Mm -hmm. that works in-home because they know that the kid they work with goes to school. (laughs) Because I've been in that situation where the client that I had was constantly being sent home from school. And we're like, what is going on there? And then the behaviors would transition over to when they got home too. And so we had to take the first step and tell the parents like, look, this is part of the all around interdisciplinary approach. And it's important for us to reach our goals to make sure that we're on the same page with the teacher too. And it turned out that whatever we were working on at home actually helped them at school too just with generalization of settings and everything. So I think parents do need to help bridge that also, but I think there could be maybe a little bit more effort on the ABA teams too. Yeah, that's true. Because they know they're at school all day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you talked about dissemination of ABA. What are some other ways that you could disseminate ABA even outside of the classroom setting? That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, talking about if you're a BCBA, if you're in the ABA world, if you're a line therapist, if you're going to school for that or an RBT, I think talking about what ABA is with other people. You know, I, I, t- I told this story when I've done this presentation to all behavior analysts because only a group of behavior analysts would think this is funny. But a few, like a year or two ago, 
I was sitting at a long table, went out to dinner with like friends of friends. And I ended up sitting next to like a friend's new boyfriend that I didn't know very well. And he was like, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a behavior analyst. And I was waiting for the like, you know, what's that? And I was kind of ready to give, you know, we all have our elevator pitch, like our 45 second, what ABA is. Mm -hmm. And he didn't ask. So I was kind of like, you know, it's a Friday night. I don't feel like talking work. So I didn't offer. I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) So later in the evening, he said something to me and he was like, gosh, sorry, I'm so quiet. I'm just like, I feel like you're analyzing everything I'm doing. And I was like, what do you think I do? Like, I asked (laughs) asked the catch up. Like, I didn't ask like your deepest, darkest secrets. I was like, I'm not like a psychotherapist or something. And he was like, I just, uh, you're probably analyzing everything I'm doing as a behavior analyst. And I was like, it's not, okay. Not really what that means. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, taking opportunities to explain what ABA is, to explain that ABA is not only for kids with autism. People are like, oh, is that the autism therapy? I'm like, no. It's not, mm-hmm. not what it is. Right. And using like everyday examples, like, hey, did you see how I did that with my child or my husband? Like that reinforced that behavior, which I'm sure people don't want to hear about all the time, but sneaking that yeah. in when you can. <laughs> yeah. What would you say is something that you see a common struggle with, with teachers, like whether it's managing classroom dynamics or challenging behaviors and what have you found that's been helpful in teaching that? I think a broad overgeneralization would be that two of the biggest challenges for teachers, for special ed teachers, would one be managing negative behaviors because that kind of can quickly overtake everything else. You know, you're not worried about curriculum maps or data collection or IEP goals if you're getting punched in the face every day. Like, you're just not. Like, that's going to take precedent right away. So with those more extreme challenging behaviors that can just kind of snowball and snowball and snowball into more and more and more extreme behaviors, I think that one can be a huge challenge because it just takes over everything. Another really big challenge that I see a lot of teachers face, and I personally as a teacher have faced too, is managing your staff. And that's something that, you know, undergrad, grad school, whatever, really doesn't prepare you for is being a manager. And none of us went into the education field because we love managing adults. No, we would have gone into another field and probably made more money. So you don't (laughs) think that's like part of your job description, but it is. Like a lot of self-contained classrooms or inclusion classrooms could have, you know, one to even five adults that you have to manage and tell what to do and give expectations and make schedules for. And I think oftentimes... There's a lot of struggles with that. One, finding the time is like the main struggle. Most schools don't have common planning time with your paras. So you're like, when am I even supposed to train them? Like, I don't have any time to do that. And the other thing is I think there's a big like elephant in the room of feeling uncomfortable doing that. Like, I don't want to tell someone what to do. Oftentimes it might be a young teacher with more experienced paraprofessionals. Like it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. I'm just going to avoid it. And I'm just not going to train my staff. I'm just really going to let it slide. And I think that's really risky because the reason those other adults are in your room is because you need three adults or four adults to meet the educational needs of those kids. And if you're Mm -hmm. using, you know, your paraprofessionals as basically glorified babysitters and having them take kids to the bathroom and redo task boxes, you're missing out. Like you could have three educators in that classroom that are running IP goals and taking data. 
So you're missing out on so much potential instruction by not investing in the time to train the staff. So I would say those would be like behavior and like staff training would be like two of the biggest challenges that I think a lot of special ed teachers face. Yeah. And I can also see it from the side of the paraprofessional not wanting to overstep whatever role they think they have and the teacher has. Mm -hmm. And I think it is also on the part of the teacher to empower those paraprofessionals and let them know that they are capable of being those educators, like you're saying. Yeah. And I think it's also not fun to be on a team that like isn't led. Like it's, it's uncomfortable to like not have clear expectations. You're like, am I supposed to do this? Am I not? Like, that's not a great place to be in. But I think once you can really train your staff and they can be, like you said, empowered as educators, they're going to like their job more. Like, mm-hmm. and I think back, like in early, early teaching, I had a paraprofessional, a new paraprofessional came to my room and, you know, teachers all talk. So they're like, oh, you're getting so-and-so. She like, she doesn't like to work. She's kind of lazy. And I was like, well, let's, let's wait and see. You know, you hate that, right? Yeah. And so she came and really her job for years had just, she had no responsibility, like real responsibility. She had like little things to do. And I was like, well, in here, we all take data. We all run programs. We all do this. And I set her up. We trained. We talked about different ways to teach skills, set her up with her programs. And oh my God, like she was the data queen. Like she took more (laughs) data than anyone I've ever seen. She would come in on Monday morning and like date all her data sheets for the whole week. And she was, she was invested because she saw like kids learning new skills. And she was like, I did that. I taught them that skill. Mm -hmm. So that activity was reinforcing and she kept doing it. And she was, you know, like an amazing teacher. Like, so it wasn't even like a paraprofessional. So once, you know, she learned how to do that and that was set up in that way, I think not only did she like her job more, but we got so much more accomplished. Right. Yeah. And it just sets a different tone in the classroom too, right? Yeah. If the kids can see that all of the adults are working well together, it's going to encourage more teamwork amongst themselves too. Oh, for sure. And then there's less of the like, oh, mom said, no, I'm going to go ask dad. Like kids will do that. Like, oh, well, this this teacher will let me get away with this and this teacher won't. Like when you're a team, they're like, oh no, everyone's following the behavior plan. Yeah. And then if you're sick or you have to go to a meeting or something, you you have to deal with something else, which you will, your classroom keeps running. It's like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. There's that trust there on every side. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you say your experience in the classroom as a teacher, you know, leading the classroom has transferred over to leading a business? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think as a teacher, you have to be super organized and very detail oriented, or just maybe a lot of teachers just naturally are. And that's, that's how I was as a teacher. I was, you know, really organized, really detail oriented. Running a special ed class is hard with so many different levels and staff training and behavior plans. So to stay on top of everything, I think you just really have to be organized. And that's something that I've definitely brought over to how I run my business is I do a lot. Like we have podcasts and we have membership and we're you know, always thinking of the next thing too. And I think to get as much done, you know, we have a small team as we do, it's it's being really organized and creating systems. And I think that's successful classrooms run well on systems. And I think successful businesses do too. When you have a process and a system and it's not haphazard, 
because you're not you're not redoing work. You're not like wasting time looking for things or being last minute when you have like a schedule and a system. And those things I think really lend itself to just being productive in whatever setting you're in. Oh yeah. You know, our CEO of the Global Autism Project, Molly, she has definitely drilled that into us as a team. <laughs> We're like addicted to Asana, which I yes. don't know if you're familiar. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am. We Asana. <laughs> yeah. And we are not sponsored by Asana, everyone. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> yeah. You never know. But yeah, I agree completely because when you don't have those systems in place, things can get lost and fall through the cracks and it just affects the rest of the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Even with a podcast, with one episode, there are so many steps that go just beyond the actual interview that people hear. Yeah, There's the editing process, there's the promotion with the guest images and the audiograms and like all of the research that goes into the back end and like the front end also. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can definitely agree that organization is important. How about with your role as the leader? How do you encourage and foster teamwork amongst your staff? So I really, once I started, I feel like I so gradually became a business owner because I like, it started as a blog and then it was this. So I, I feel a little lucky that I like eased into the position, but as it became much more of a, a real position that was like, oh, this is a real business. We really have something here. I kind of geeked out on any like productivity business tool I could like get my hands on. Like I was like, what podcast can I listen to? What book can I listen to? Because I didn't feel prepared for that role. I'm like, I'm prepared for the role of a behavior analyst and a teacher. But like, I, I remember telling my husband one day, should I, should I get my MBA? Should I go back to school? And he's like, no, Sasha, you're not going back to get your MBA. Like I was like, I don't know how to do this. So I really, for a while, just like tried to consume, and I still do, like try to learn as much as I can about being a good leader and managing my team. And, you know, we have a small team and one of them is my husband. So that's like a whole different mess on how you manage and work with your spouse. It's great and horrible at the same time as anyone <laughs> who works with their spouse maybe would agree. But I, I try to utilize the same principles that I talk about with teachers, with staff training, you know, in building rapport and having really clear expectations upfront. I think Something as simple as, you know, being clear on expectations just can solve so many potential problems right off the bat that it's kind of crazy that we aren't regularly doing that. So being really clear on expectations from the start, I think really helps. And having, you know, an environment and a culture where people can ask for help, can ask for advice and changes and mess up and make mistakes and it's okay. Um, but having those expectations really clear up front, uh, I think, is is so imperative. Yeah, and keeping that mission of whatever you guys are doing at the forefront, right? Like the impact yeah. that you have that you're making is huge. You're helping teachers and professionals to become better at their job, to help people with autism and help their families. And it's just like a domino effect from there. What is it about people with autism that you love so much to want to help them as the autism helper? I think, I think back to like some of those first few students I had in this group of students, like I said, that I still keep in touch with. And I think about them a lot because some of them for a while maybe had teachers that didn't get them or therapists that just didn't spend the time connecting. 
And I saw what a difference that made when when you do really care and you want to take the ex, it's extra work to figure it out um, and to figure out the best ways to teach this child to read and to teach this child to communicate what he wants and needs. So I always think about, you know, specific kids too of like, oh man, like it was fun working with that kid and we really figured it out. And so I think I'm just, that's why I'm so passionate about it is I want to give that opportunity to this group of kids that might not always get that. And yes, that's mm-hmm. all of education. You might have crappy teachers here and there. And and it's not even that, you know, maybe a teacher, a child had a crappy teacher, but it's a lot of extra work sometimes to figure out you know, what that solution is and what that looks like. And then it keeps changing. And I think that's definitely something that I love about this field. You know, Dr. Stephen Shore said, if you've met one individual with autism, you've met one individual with autism. Yeah. And I quote that like in every live workshop I do, because as an educator or as a clinician or as a parent, I mean, you are never bored if you teach children with autism. There's always something new. And even if you have the same group of kids for three years in a row, man, when they come back after summer break, it's like, oh, guess what? I learned all these new cool behaviors at summer camp and I'm here. (sighs) Or, you know, things that worked two months ago don't work now. What worked with Johnny isn't going to work with Sarah. So it's always just like taking that detective stance of like looking outside the box. What can I do differently? You know, you can be a 20 year veteran teacher and have one classroom or one child or even just one classroom, like just the dynamic of the kids together that just like knocks you right back to your one where you're like, what am I doing? Like, I, mm. I I thought I was better prepared than this. So in that aspect, you know, it keeps you engaged and it keeps you thinking and fresh about different ways. But I think my, why I love this field is always thinking back to students that I've had and the progress that they've made and how awesome it is to see that progress happen. Can you share a success story with one of your students? Sure. Let me think about who to talk about. So one of my, you know, like you don't have favorites, but like <laughs> you can have favorites sometimes. So one of my favorite students really long time ago came in with pretty little language, um, maybe one word utterances here and there, a lot of like anxiety-based behaviors with like kind of and it, around transitions with like gag to the point of almost throwing up, like transitions were really hard for him. And we really worked on a lot of like pairing and reinforcement and like making the classroom and me a chocolate chip cookie somewhere he wanted to be. And that really stuck with him. And he really, he loved coming to school, like days he was sick, like the mom would be like, oh my God. I had, I had to force him to stay home because he like wants to come to school, <laughs> but he, he really loved coming to school. And then once he loved coming to school, we could really, really work on communication. So we went all in on, you know, he had some verbal language. So we're like, we want more. So we just, you know, really kept working specifically on, you know, functional communication, increasing communication opportunities, um, increasing social skill communication with his peers. And when he graduated, he was such a typical teenager that I just like loved it because he was like, he was snarky, like he was snotty. He would tell me, shut up. But I was like, you're 14. Like, yeah, like there should be a negative consequence for that. But like, I kind of love that you say shut up. Like three years ago, (laughs) you could barely talk. And, you know, I like joke, tell, I like jokingly tell the story a lot that like when the fire alarm would go off, he would always go, 
ah, shit. And like, <laughs> it was like always like, you know, people are like, don't say that. But I'm like, that's what I'm thinking too. But I'm like, yeah. man, but you went from like limited language three years ago to like having a, so in like the appropriate tone, the appropriate time yeah. would like say that. Yeah. So I kind of loved how his personality developed and that he was just kind of this like typical 14 year old boy and had all these great communication skills that enabled him to like really make friends. And that was fun to watch that last year is like him really develop relationships on his own with peers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really cool how as a teacher, you can see the kids grow up year after year and you really see the changes in the skills that they acquire. So I can just imagine how rewarding that must be. And all those little baby steps, they really add up. You know, I encourage teachers to to spend the time like celebrating the baby steps because that's what you see in, you know, on the day-to-day. Like, oh man, they they identified the color orange. We've been working on orange for two months. Like live in that moment. Like be really excited. They identified orange. If you've been working on orange for a while, like like you're, you're treating your staff to coffee the next day. Like call mom and dad and be like, guess what, mom and dad? He said orange. Cause no one else is going to really get that except your team and that kid's parents. You know, like you might go home and tell your spouse or your roommate, like, guess what? Johnny said orange. And they're like, cool. And you're like, no, 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 this is a big deal. Yeah. Like if you knew him. Yeah. And too often we're like on to the next. We're like, oh, now I got to teach blue. Like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like letting yourself you know, celebrate those little victories and be good about looking back to like, where was he a year ago? Where was he two years ago? To see, then you really see how all those baby steps come together. Mm -hmm. All right, Sasha, we're going to have to wrap up here, but I actually have a two-part last question. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, as many places in the world are transitioning or have already transitioned to virtual learning, This can be quite challenging for not only the students, but the teachers and the parents, just everyone involved in the whole situation. So my first question is, what advice would you give to the teachers who are looking for ways to keep their students engaged through the screen? I think as a special educator, you know, you are uniquely prepared to handle this. Yes, you might not have specific training in virtual learning or Google Classroom, But you do have training to differentiate and to look outside the box and to be a problem solver. That's like part of what a special ed teacher does every day. So I think using that skill and being that problem solver and thinking outside the box when it comes to virtual learning and continuously changing things up as needed. If this platform isn't working, if this activity isn't working, you know, reading those students' behaviors, you know, Skinner said, the learner's always right. Like looking at like, okay, this isn't working. What can I do differently? And keep kind of that, you know, foundational component of a special ed teacher as the problem solver, the one who differentiates, the one that can individualize and apply that to virtual learning. And I think, I think you'll be good. It's not going to be perfect, but that life isn't. So Mm -hmm. I think as long as you can kind of keep problem solving, you're going to be on the right track. Great. And what about for parents who are looking for ways to support their children at home? I think for parents, it's really just give yourself grace, give your kids grace, give the teachers grace. Like this is not a situation anyone wanted to be in. And, you know, as a parent that had, you know, my toddlers were at home all of spring and I still had to work full time and I was pregnant. I mean, it was 
it was rough here for a while. And we had like some not so great parenting moments and, and that's okay. You know, like if, if, if there's a morning where they just like watch TV all morning and you're like, I was a horrible parent today. You weren't a horrible parent today. It's okay. If there's those mornings where maybe you just, you had to be on a call or you had to get work done, or you just needed time to yourself to like take a shower and go to the bathroom. That's okay. Like this isn't, you know, going to be this way forever. This is temporary, even though it doesn't feel that in the moment, but to just give yourself grace if there are those really off days or your child has an off day or you as a parent have an off day, like it's okay. Yeah. That's so valuable for whoever needs to hear it right now. We've all had those not great parenting moments. (laughs) Okay, Sasha, how can people find out more about you? So we're really on all the social media platforms at The Autism Helper. So Instagram, Facebook, um, Pinterest, and then our main website is theautismhelper.com. That's where our blog lives, and you can find more information about the membership or the course there. Great. I'll be sure to post links to all of your sites on our show notes. Sounds good. Okay, Sasha. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Teachers around the world do not get enough credit for the immense amount of work that they put in every day to ensure that their students meet their goals. Through diligently preparing lesson plans, patiently managing classrooms, and supportively training staff, educators powerfully impact the lives of their students and, in turn, the future of the world. It's easy to forget that teachers are human too with their own lives and families outside of the classroom. Whether they may be facing personal challenges, feeling uneasy about schools reopening, or struggling to maintain their students' attention online, they're expected to always power through and remain composed for their class. Whatever the case may be, there are many great educators out there who are committed to keeping their students' interests at the forefront. If you're a parent, I invite you to consciously practice a little extra compassion towards your child's teacher. For example, taking a moment to send them a thank you email acknowledging their efforts. Teacher appreciation doesn't need to be limited to the first week of May. I'm sure we can all remember our favorite teacher, someone who left a lasting impression on us and in some way shaped us to be who we are today. Let's continue to celebrate those that have dedicated their lives to inspire learning. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.